Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. It's good to see everybody. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 14 as we just continue on in Luke's narrative here. We're going to be looking at the passages of seven to, uh, verse 7 through verse 14. You know, one thing that I remember, I don't know if you've ever had this, but have you ever been at a meeting or a Christmas banquet or just when a restaurant or something is opening up, you're waiting for the doors. Maybe it's like Golden Corral, something like that, all-you-can-eat buffet, and you're there early before the doors open. As soon as as the doors open, though, there's this mad rush to get in, trying to be first in line. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Maybe it's at Thanksgiving dinner or something. Or I can think of Disney as the days when you didn't reserve, you know, you just, everyone rushes in. I remember the first time that Dustin and I went to, um, I think it was actually with Matthew, Matt Willis, uh, is uh, to the Shepherds Conference. And this is a big conference, 5,000 men over up in, in uh, Grace Community Church. And looking forward to my first time there. And it's a pretty good size auditorium. Seats three, 4,000 people. Uh, but everyone was at the doors. I mean, you would think the Who was getting ready to play in this concert, which, you know, and that's a tragic what happened to them in the 79, I think it was, where they had an open forum and anybody could come in first. And, and many, many people died that day. But it almost seemed like that. People were jockeying for positions. And all of a sudden, the doors opened. And you would think that these pastors, these epitome of God's preachers, would just with, uh, you know, decorum would walk down and find a seat. No, it was like the running of the bulls. I I mean, you got going and they're holding their backpacks and briefcase, briefcases. And I mean, they're just, I finally, I was in the midst of it. And I finally just stood to the side and said, you know what? I'll wait outside. I just, everyone jockeying for the position to get closer to the pulpit, so on and so forth. But that's kind of, we, we've experienced that, whether it's at games or any type of thing. You kind of understand what I'm going to, where people are trying to get the best seats in the house. Now, as we open up to the 14th chapter of Luke last week, we saw the wisdom and compassion of Jesus on display along with the hostility of the religious leaders when it comes to what, what is allowable to do on the Sabbath. Jesus is invited to the dinner at the house of a, a prominent leader of the Pharisees, a leader, a ruler of the Pharisees, and he's once again immediately thrown into a conflict, a, 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 a conflict about the Sabbath. He does heal the man with dropsy in spite of their hostility of the religious leaders. And through that, we learn that we are called to acts of mercy and helps as we love our neighbor as ourselves, recognizing that you and I are not to withhold doing good to what God tells us to do. That could be loving our wives, submitting to our, uh, submitting to our husbands, to uh, being uh, fathers, not provoking your children, to how we work and how we spend our time, it, uh, to give forgiveness or to release bitterness. We are not to withhold good to those that God has said that we are to love. That's very important. Today, as we go into verse 7 of chapter 14, we're going to continue with Luke's narrative of Jesus' dinner at that house of the religious leader. It's continuing on. However, Jesus now is going to go on the offensive. As lastly, you might remember last week, they were watching Jesus closely to observe to see what he was going to do about the man with dropsy of whether or not he would heal it. In this case, now Jesus is the examiner. He's the one that is watching them closely. And he's going to use it as a teaching moment on the characteristics and attitudes of those who are disciples of Christ, those who are God's elect, those who are children of God, who are citizens of the kingdom of God. So with that, let's look at Luke chapter 14. Again, I want to encourage you to always bring your Bible. We do put some up here on the monitor, but I would encourage you to be writing, taking notes, writing your Bible, do those types of things, because I think it just helps you learn a little bit better. Luke chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 7 and just read 7 through 11 at this moment and then go on in a little bit, a little bit later in a moment. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not set down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But... 
When you are invited, go and sit in the lowest places so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That would be a phrase that you would want to underline or highlight in your Bible. Father, thank you for this time. And I pray that you open up our minds and hearts that we may receive again your word with gladness. Father, there may be a rebuke that we need to hear. Maybe there's a correction in our life. Maybe there's a words of encouragement, a way of learning, a, a way in which we need to learn to walk in you. Father, I pray that you just be with this time. Let us use it wisely, knowing that one day we will stand before you and give an account for this very moment. And I thank you for those that are here. I pray that you put your favor on them. And Lord, I sanctify us in your truth, in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, the setting is still at the house of this prominent religious leader. So you, you can get the picture. They're all sitting there. Now, in those days, they didn't necessarily sit there. I may use that phrase. But they had couches around the table, and you would lay on it. So there would be uh, the leader at, the, at the, the ruler of the house or whoever, the host, uh, the place of honor at the big table. And then they would lay then around the table in kind of a U, and at the end, there would be nothing. And in those places, you would sit according to a certain place. And after this awkward silence, remember last week the sounds of silence of Jesus asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Right after that event, and Jesus then uh, warns them or commands them to not withhold love and withhold goodness, he turns the tables on them as, as he becomes the examiner, and he determines to use this dinner as a teaching moment. Now I know we're just in the message, but let me give you an editorial note. Every moment, listen, parent... You know, uh, father, husband, wife, every moment should be used as a teaching moment. You never know when God is going to be able to teach uh, uh, you or someone else about the goodness and wonderful glory. Even someone cutting you off in the midst of traffic on coming here on Sunday is a teaching moment to your children. It's, oh, thank God that God's uh, met our needs and kept us safe on our way here. Instead of what a jerk. What's his problem? Yeah, that could be the same guy that's coming to church here. You never know. He could be sitting next to you right now. But every moment is a teaching moment. So just as a note, just remember, be aware of how you and I are to teach our kids and, our, and each other, disciple each other, as, as um, Deuteronomy says, in our setting up and our setting down. And so this is just a side note on that. So let's go on to the meat of it. But as Jesus is watching them, he observes the various attendees jockeying for the best seats at the table. Theologian Garland writes that dinners were regarded as barometers of one's prestige in the gathering of the community. In other words, seating was according to the status or reflect the status, and the best seats were based on rank, reputation, reputation or age. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a formal dinner that involves like politicians there or city officials there or something of that nature but that definitely happens you know you see it this table is reserved this is reserved and and then there's the listing when they come up of everyone who is here and every assistant of every unknown politician has to stand up and get a clapping I mean it's just it's just obnoxious really what it is but uh, but it's just something that you, you you notice and you recognize for you and I we go to you you go to my house you're just going to have to get the seat that you're going to get you know you may not even get a seat that actually matches you may wind up being on the couch with a tv dinner i don't know but in this case in those days where you sat at dinner was very very important it said something about who you are and how others valued you and that's very important it's good for us to remember that that culture as in many cultures today was a shame or an honor and shame culture it's honor and shame you always wanted to be honored. You always wanted to be avoid shame. Well, that, and that's very similar to us as well. But to seek and keep honor in those days was considered the highest of values and virtues, while shame was regarded the lowest. Like many today, people sought prestige, power, passion. They were driven by pride. They sought to use every opportunity to promote themselves and their family, family name. Thomas Schreiner writes that the dinner becomes a place for social jockeying and self-advancement. 
And so Jesus is sitting there and he's watching the rat race as all these people are trying to get closer to the prominent ruler of the Sanhedrin, maybe even closer to Jesus. They, they all wanted to be closer to the host of it. No one wanted to be near the end. Jesus, watching this, decides to tell them a parable that's going to offer them some practical advice of how they can avoid the shame of humiliation of being asked to get up and move because someone else was higher in rank than themselves. He wanted to help them avoid the risky taking of a seat of honor that did not belong to them. It's a simple advice that cautions people against assuming a places of honor that may not belong to them, for you never know if someone greater than you is going to come into the room. So instead of rushing to find a prominent place of position at the dinner table, one should purposely seek out a more modest seat. That's what they're, as you come in, sit at the bottom. So someone can come and say, oh, that's not for you. You come up. So just practical advice. Now, the point of this whole parable, you understand what's going on. I think you can picture in your mind as they're jockeying. They want to be closer to Jesus, closer. And then people are having to be moved. No, you can't sit there. You've got to move up. Oh, no, you need to move up here. Now, as you get that image in your mind, Jesus is teaching a real truth. And that's found in verse 11, which I asked you to underline earlier. For Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And he who humbles himself will what? So in other words, it's coming in recognizing that, hey, I need to consider myself a little bit more humble and not jockey for position. This statement would have been shocking to his audience and not well received in this honor-shame culture. Again, in this honor-shame culture, humility was actually considered one of the lowest virtues of all. You and I would say well, humility is something that is good, but in that society, humility was not something that was held in high esteem. It was not one that many would be pursuing. That would be left for the servants and the lowest of the low. This is another reason that the religious leaders hated him as it revealed and exposed their own prideful hearts. Turn back, if you would, to Matthew chapter 23. In verse 2, Jesus warns his disciples even then about adopting that type of attitude of look at me, look who I am, of self-promotion. Matthew chapter 23, first book in the New Testament, look down at verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus warned his disciples that the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, which means they're sitting in esteemed places. So you are to listen to them. He says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. We see this with the Sabbath day. But then go on, look, they do all their deeds to be what? Seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad. These are things in which they would have uh, portions of scripture written on their foreheads and on their hands, and they would put it on different places. And their fringes are long so that you can see them and marvel. And they love the places of honor at feast. Here's where Jesus is talking about. And the best seats in the synagogues. And the greetings in the marketplace. And being called rabbi by others. They love to be self. They love not only self-promotion, but they want to be adored and valued by everyone else. But Jesus condemns that type of behavior. After speaking to the crowd surrounding him, go back, if you would, to Luke chapter 14. So Jesus is speaking to the crowd and says, do not do this. Here, save yourself the embarrassment. Instead, uh, humble yourself and then you will be exalted. But then he goes on now to look at and speak to the host himself in verse 12. He said, he said also to the man who had invited him. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. 
But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus now gives his host some wise advice about who to invite to his home. Four groups are mentioned as those that are normally invited to someone's home. Friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors. That's typical. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're typically going to invite your family, your friends, your neighbors, things that people that you have something in common with. And I realized a long time ago that God has not put it in the cards for Don and I to be rich. However, we do sometimes make an effort to make rich friends. Those are always good to have. God should give each one of us as we get married, oh, here's going to be your rich friend for your life. That's not the case. And those of you who are a little bit our friends, I'm not really saying that. I'm just teasing. So please don't take that and uh, write us out of your will. Uh, so as we go on. Now, there's nothing again wrong again, as I said, with inviting uh, members of these groups to your home, you know, for dinner. However, Jesus is wanting them to understand that instead of inviting people for what they bring to the table, prestige, power, or position. In other words, to make yourself look good. Look who's coming to my house. Look who, who, who's coming and visiting me. Who, look who, who considers me a friend. He should instead invite those who are typically overlooked in society. Again, he's saying, you have the means and you already have the prestige and the power and the position, so why don't you use that to invite someone who doesn't get the opportunity to experience those types of things. Again, as I know you've already noticed, he mentions four groups in this one as well. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. In other words, all of those that are passed by society. All those who cannot give you anything in return, who could not bring a, a, a beautiful or rich gift to give to you for inviting them. Those who would not be wearing the greatest of clothes, maybe those who would not know the table manners or who in return would then invite you to something esteemed and special as well. Maybe even those who would ask for a doggy bag of the food left over. Instead of dinner becoming a place for social jockeying and self-advancement, it becomes a place to welcome and receive those who are considered outcast. They are encouraged to invite and serve others, not to receive back, but to love and give and serve their overlooked neighbors. Take your Bibles again and turn back to Luke chapter 6. We've looked at this several, I'm not sure when we saw this. We're about in our 87th message in Luke, 87th week. So sometime, somewhere in a land far, far away, a long, long time ago, we looked at Luke chapter 6. And look at verse 32. This, this echoes back, this teaching here echoes back to Jesus' teaching earlier in his ministry where he cautioned, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Again, even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But, in verse 35, but love your enemies, so do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be what? Great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So look at this. Even entertaining in your homes should be marked with unselfishness, with a willingness to serve those who cannot reciprocate the favor. Our motivation in serving is not to be based on what we can get back in this world, but looking forward to the repayment on the day of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul writes of this in Acts chapter 24. It's here on the monitor. When Paul says, uh, but I, this I confess to you that according to the way, this is the way, uh, this is the word in which they would talk about Christianity. It was called the way 
which they call a sect. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything he laid down by the law and written by the prophets, having a hope in God, which these, me, the, which these men themselves accept, speaking of the Pharisees, those who were accusing Paul, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the believers and the unbelievers. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul is saying, my motivation here is to recognize that one day I will stand before God and give an account of how I've used everything that God has given me. Whether it's your money, whether it's your prestige, your power, your position, your home, your car, so on and so forth. God is going to give an account. He has given you those things so that you may give to others. Not to just use for yourself. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes of this day when, that, when all that we have done will be evaluated by fire according to the word of God. 1 Corinthians 3, if you want to read that a little bit later. And so this is important as he says, listen, you need not to look for repayment today, but the, but, the, but the spiritual truth, the thing I want you to understand is that one day you will be repaid at the day of the resurrection. And so that's important for us to understand. Because we live in a world that says, well, if I give you this, then you must give it back to me. If I like something you said on Twitter or Facebook, or if I like a picture on Instagram, or I add you to my list, then the expectation is what? That you must then reciprocate. And if you don't, that's an issue. Because really, I am using you to self-promote myself, and I will self-promote you as I accept you. And so it's a game that we play. We're looking for something back, typically. Now, this is different than the world's view of how things should work. We come now to the crux of the matter. What is Jesus teaching in this parable and in this, in teaching or talking to his host? What Jesus is doing, and here's what I want you to get, and here's the little line is that you and I are to exercise humility and generosity and hospitality. That's it. That's the message. As believers, as Christians, we are to exercise humility and generosity in our hospitality. Now, hospitality, as we have commented on many times, is commanded in scriptures. The Bible tells us contribute to the needs of saints and seek to show hospitality. In 1 Peter, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Whoa. Hebrews, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And so you and I must be cognizant that the Bible has called us, not suggested, but has commanded us to do hospitality. It's one of the things that we are trying to make as a hallmark, a mark of OBBC, that we are people that open up our homes to others, that we use it to disciple and to train and to care for one another. It is a great venue for evangelism, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and worship. It is an important and effective tool in developing lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God, which is what we're trying to do here. It is an activity that we have encouraged each other to make as a habit. And many of you have been doing that, and I appreciate it. I want to encourage you to continue on. In this passage, Jesus is instructing on the motives, though, behind our giving and receiving of hospitality. Our motive is the focus as he is teaching on the characteristics and the attitudes of the disciples of Christ. We are not to be like the world in that we seek our own gain or to pet our own eagles, but display the attitude and actions of a child of God. So I want to take a moment and look at both of those characteristics that he's telling us to have here is that of humility and generosity. These are ones you're very familiar with, so I know that you're going to grab onto it. But first, humility is defined as the disposition of valuing or assessing oneself appropriately, especially in light of one's sinfulness or our creatureness, our, human, our, hum, our humanness. Humility is demonstrated by meekness. Many people think of meekness as, as a sign of weakness. But Moses was called the, the meekest man there ever was. Jesus himself is called a man of meekness. Meekness is a strength, though. It's a strength in grace, not in weakness. 
We are also, it's also demonstrated by modest thoughts about oneself. They're not uh, putting oneself above another. Other biblical concepts of humility is gentleness, kindness, and tenderhearted. They're all wrapped in of humility. And you see, humility is the solution to the problem of pride. And you have to remember that pride is the original sin. If we were going to Isaiah, where it gives us a picture of what's going on with Satan. Remember, he had an eye problem, hence why he was cast out of heaven, where he says, I will, I will be like God. I will ascend to the heavens. I will be the most powerful of all. And you and I have adopted the same practice. Adam and Eve, I will choose whether or not I will eat of that tree. I will grab that, tr- that fruit and I will eat of it. For we ourselves will be like God's. So the solution to the pride that each and every one of us have buried deep in the marrow of our bones is humility. Scripture warns, as I think we have it up here, is that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to be divide the spoils with the proud. One's pride will bring him low, we see in Proverbs 29. But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 6, it says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand. This is really what Jesus is talking about. Or stand in the place of great. For it is better be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. What your eyes have seen. So in other words, scripture is calling for you and I to develop humility, a gentleness, a tenderness of heart, an appropriateness of one's own uh, uh, station, and not station in life, but one's own sinfulness and creaturelessness. Richard Baxter lists some of the characteristics of the humble. Richard Baxter was a great uh, Puritan preacher in England. He says the characteristic of the humble is they have a consciousness of their own sin. So they're ones who do not lift themselves up, for they know who they truly are. One who has humility views sin as the greatest evil and God's favor as the greatest good. So they are not saying, no, the woman gave me the fruit, or the snake made me do it, or am I my brother's keeper, as Cain would say. But they would say that, yes, I see sin as the greatest evil, and I recognize that I am a sinner. They are not judgmental of others, but full of mercy and compassion. Those are just three of the characteristics. I think he had like seven or eight. I just wanted to give you those three. This is what someone who has humility understands. Take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2 if you would. I'm going to give you the greatest and perfect example, the highest example of humility. As Christ gives us an example of what true, true humility looks. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, have, uh, being in full accord in one mind. In other words, do not let pride uh, separate or tear apart your community of believers. Do nothing, look at verse 3, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let me ask, as you walk through the door and you view each other, are you already in your mind making value judgments based on someone? Does it affect where you sit or who, where you might sit by, who you might shake hands with, who you might sit by when we have dinner here in a little bit together? Or do we come in our, our little cliques and our little groups? It's so Sad in the ways in which we do that, and we do it subconsciously, not even thinking. But in verse 5, have this mind, uh, you say, yeah, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In other words, Jesus lived what he was teaching here in Luke. He humbled himself so that at the right time that God may exalt him so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We speak of the humiliation of Christ, of that of becoming in flesh. That the God, the God who created all things, surrendered not his deity, but he allowed himself to come and walk as human flesh. He had to live as a human. He had to suffer the indignities of what it means to be a human and to be a human in the first century without indoor plumbing. He was a man who had no place to lay his head and he relied on the kindness of others to feed him and to take care of him and to give him shelter. And even on the last night of his death, when he was coordinated as Christ and he was to have to dinner, it was in a borrowed room. And of course, we know that his death, he was put in a buried tomb. A bor- I'm sorry, a borrowed term, not a buried tomb. That's kind of, but a borrowed tomb. This is the type of humility that God has called us to. How often do you empty yourself of your pride? Having the mind of Christ. Looking to serve others. Secondly, let's look at generosity. Generosity is marked by an attitude and and action of unselfishness, altruism, and mercy. Generosity is the free and liberal giving of wealth, possession, or substance to someone else. Excuse me. The the generosity of God himself is shown in his free bestowal of grace upon undeserving sinners. Scripture encourages, as you look here on the monitor, that the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. In Proverbs, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Whoever is generous to the poor, again, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deeds. Does your generosity know no bounds? Does your generosity lend you to give, not expecting to give back? You don't need to repay me. What God has given to me, I will give back to you. Now, that could be of money. It could be of our time. It could be of our energy. It could be of our home. It could be use of our car or something that we own. But God has called us to be generous. Why? Because he is a generous God. He gives to us all things according to his riches in what? Glory. God being rich in mercy, lavished upon us his love. We read that the first church of Jerusalem practiced generosity in Acts 2, where it says, And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking breads in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And because of that, the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. Those who had homes sold them so that they may lay it at the disciples' feet so that they may then give to those in need. Paul instructs Christians that since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He says, if you have the gift of prophecy, then in proportion to your faith. If you have the gift of serving, in your serving. In the one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. But he also says to the one who has this grace, the one who contributes, contribute in generosity. With cheerfulness. This is God has called us to live, not only with humility, but also with generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes of the courage of the church of Macedonia, who in their severe severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It's not that they gave a large amount of money, but according to what they had, they were very generous in their severe test of affliction and poverty. So here we see that everyone can have a heart of generosity. To have a heart of generosity is not based on what you have or what you do or do not have, but it's based on what God has given you. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Let me give you a biblical example of that. Let's turn to 2 Samuel. That's in the Old Testament. We haven't looked at that in a while. There's a story about David. 2 Samuel chapter 9. You recall that King David was chased and hounded for several years by King Saul. Saul wanted to kill David, knowing that David was going to supplant him one day as king. And so he sought to kill David at every chance he got. But according to God's sovereign, purposeful decision, Saul eventually was killed by the Philistines, or by his own hand, I should say. David became king. And once David then settled in Jerusalem and, and he was then crowned king of both Israel and at that time of Judea and Samaria or Judea. And once he got it all together, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9 verse 1 that David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul? Now, as, as a king saying that after supplanting another king, those are words that you don't want to hear. Is there anyone how, left in the house of Saul? Because what would happen if there was anyone left in the house of Saul? They were executed most likely. Why? Well, you you got to take care of the king. You don't take a shot at the king. You got to kill the king and everyone with him. But look at here. David says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Who was Jonathan? He was the son of King Saul, the one who was going to be the next king. However, they had developed a close uh, brotherly friendship. And God used that to save David's life as Jonathan more than once saved death and rescued David from the hands of his father. Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. Could you imagine how Ziba was feeling that day? Now the king wants to see you. Well, who's Ziba? He's a servant of Saul. What might happen here? He could lose his head. He could lose everything. And the king said to him, is there in verse 3, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Now, you might think, is this a trick? But Ziba said to the king, there is still the son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machar, the son of Amiel of Lodabar. Amasebetheth, what a name. The son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and he fell on his face and paid homage. Here's the son of the prince but he humbles himself knowing that at any moment he could lose his head, lose all that he has or something else. And David said, said, look at that with an exclamation point. There's a, there, there's a excitement about David. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And paid homage, or in, and, and excuse me, and Mesebeth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should regard for a dead dog such as I? But David, because of his love and devotion to Jonathan, decides that he wants to give love and kindness and generosity, as we're going to see here, to Dave, Dave, or Jonathan's son. For he goes on to say here, and we're not going to read all of it for time's sake, but he goes on and says, everything that belonged to Saul, I'm now going to give to you. And look down at verse 12. Or look at verse, uh, yeah, verse uh, uh, 11. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord commanded the servants, so will your servant do. So Meshavetheth added at David's table like one of the king's son. One who humbled himself was exalted. 
In verse 12, And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So he lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. There was nothing that Mephibosheth could give him. If anything, he was a, he could be a hindrance. He would be an opponent. He could rise up an army in the name of Jonathan and Saul and try to overthrow David. But David shows humility and generosity in opening up not only his home, but his heart and all that Saul had and gives it back to him. He's a prime example of one who's going straight, uh, showing great humility and kindness and generosity to one that he had every right to be either banished, imprisoned, or put to death. Yet David demonstrated his love for his friend, and not only sparing his son, but also elevating him to dine with the king every day and restoring to him his lands and his servants. So you and I are to show humility and generosity in our hospitality. So let me bring it here to a close. What you and I can do to help us do this. So we've come to understand that in the Christian economy, in the kingdom of God, humility and generosity are not only valuable virtues and characteristics that every Christian should aspire to, but they're also fruits of the Spirit. Humility and generosity reflect the very character of the Trinity. And this is, this is contrary to the world. This is topsy-turvy. But in the kingdom of God, in his economy, uh, economy humility and generosity is, is a high virtue. It is those, these two, it's through these two attitudes that God has purposed to glorify himself and for our good as well as that of our neighbors as we show love and kindness to them. These two virtues are to, are to uh, be offered even to those who hate us, persecute us, and demean us. Even to those who are hostile to our faith. As Peter writes in 1 Peter, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on that day of visitation, on that day of the resurrection of the just and unjust. So in other words, you and I should be humble and generous even to those that hate us. The problem, however, again, in this story, you are not Jesus. In this story, you are the Pharisees. You are the prominent man in that house. You are the one that is jockeying for position. For we are like the religious leaders and we ourselves are prone, to, uh, are prone to pride, leading us also to jockey for positions of power, prestige, and prominence. This prideful attitude is driven by an oversense of worth, an arrogance, but also insecurity, a lack of self-esteem, of envy, and jealousy. Scripture has called us to empty ourselves of these attitudes that lead to unloving, selfish actions. In James 3, here in the monitor, it says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unscriptural, or unspiritual, excuse me, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. And every vile practice, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This should mark this church, this covenant community. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And this is hard to do. We have spent a lifetime fueling our pride adapting to the ways of the world and seeking honor and avoiding anything that might be considered shameful or below us. We are taught to self-promote, to self-motivate, and to self-love. Today we are faced with a culture that is self-obsessed over our identity and to develop new ways to raising our personhood. This is through whether it's intersectionality of, of looking where you are in the schematic of life and finding ways to make yourself up higher in the ladder. 
It's found itself in identity politics. Is that if, it, if, you, if you put all your ethnicity and all your other uh, de- desires of how you like to have sex and everything else, that will put you higher and make you more prominent, more likely to be listened to. Is any wonder we live in a day in which there is a, uh, what's the word I'm looking, I'm not going to find the word, but an overabundance of young people that are now claiming to be non-binary or lesbians or bisexuals or transgender. Because those are put values. There's, there's a value in claiming yourself to be one of them. If you're a young lady and you're struggling in school and you're being bullied, the best thing to do is just come out as a transgender. You are then put on a pedestal and no one can speak against it, not even your parents. This is the world that we live in. This is fueled by pride and a jockeying and a desire for social status and pride and position. Yet we must adopt the attitude of the Apostle Paul who wrote that I am the least of the apostles. Think of the Apostle Paul. Probably the greatest Christian that you and I, the top three at least, right? But here, listen, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ. This is what he said early in his ministry. And you can imagine he struggled with that, knowing that he had killed Christians. But here he now is preaching. There might have been points in which he felt like he did not measure up to John or Peter, or James, who gave his life early in in his life in the ministry of Christ. But then a little bit later, listen to what he says. I am the chief of sinners. Wait, he's going backwards. But then even later in his ministry, he says this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Mark this down. Maturity in Christ, a growing sanctification in Christ, will lead you to more humility, not less. Remember, a mark of humility is our awareness of sin in our own life. It will make you more sensitive to the sin. Paul, who had much to be proud of, who had much to boast in, recognized that there was nothing in himself that could lead to boasting or pride. So how do you and I adopt the attitudes of humility And generosity? How do we pursue them when the world says don't? When it goes against uh, the very uh, nature that we we have still sometimes reside in our life or, or the flesh that resides, not the nature? How does the Spirit work in our lives to bring humility and generosity to fruit? We do what Paul did. First, he recognized that our self identity, our value, and our salvation only comes through Christ and his work on Calvary. Matthew and I were talking about this just uh, just this week um, when people say, I'm not worthy or we're not worthy. And and that's true. Your worth, your value as as an individual, as a human, is only based on the value and worthiness of Christ. That's the identity that matters. That's the identity that sets us right with God. In Romans 7.25, in answer to the question of wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He proclaimed, thanks be to God through Christ. That's who will deliver me from this wretched man. And as our scripture said earlier, it's not of anything that you and I may boast but it's only through the grace of God. He goes on to proclaim, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live for the man who humbled himself and generosity or generously gave of himself so that I may have life. In Philippians, he says, whatever gain I had, whatever advantage I had by my birth and by my intellect and by my education, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
<coughs> in order that I may gain Christ. Lose your pride. Gain Christ through humility and generosity. Secondly, number two, how you and I should pursue this, how you and I can gain humility and generosity is we should celebrate others looking for opportunities to serve and love them. Forbidding to allow any jealousy or envy or other vice to keep us from filling the second commandment. You and I need to look at others not as competition, but as those that God has placed. They are, they are created in the dignity of God. It doesn't matter if they're the president of the United States, the queen of England, or they're just some guy that's, that's, that's roaming through your garbage looking for cans on trash day. They are created in the image of God. And we need to find ways to show humility and generosity by loving each and every one. Not for our sake, but for the sake of God, who glorifies himself through that for their good. So let us commit today to be men and women of God who demonstrate true humility and generosity in showing hospitality to those around us. And this way, God is glorified and works all things for our good. Let us commit to fight every vestige of pride and selfishness that still resides in our heart. So says the word of God. So says our Savior who showed us humility and generosity on the cross that day. Let me close with James 4, 6. It's past this scripture where God warns and encourages us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. May he exalt us in due time. Amen? Their head bowed, never had closed just for a moment. I just want to encourage you to just take a moment to pause and consider the words of Christ to humble ourselves and to wait until repayment, until that day that he comes. That we may consider his goodness towards us. That we may then pray and ask God to help us to respond to the Holy Spirit's work in our life that we too may be humble and generous in the time of need. Then would you come and share with us a prayer. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.